The following conversation is with Kai Buddha, Magic Hall of Famer and one of the greatest players to have ever played the game of Magic the Gathering. Kai is sometimes called the German juggernaut, and it's for good reason. He has done almost everything at the highest levels of Magic play and has dominated Magic from the 90s until even today with a recent Pro Tour Top 8 finish in 2023. I admit that I was a little bit starstruck talking to Kai. He has a very storied background, but what I found to be most refreshing here is how candid he was and how he doesn't take himself too seriously. I think that's truly a hallmark of someone who has the right perspective on things. And I am so excited to be able to present this conversation with you. Before we get into the conversation, I just want to give a quick plug for my Patreon at patreon.com slash humans of magic. The Patreon is the best way to directly support the show, directly support what I do, and to give a little bit of your financial support and for me to ask for it is no easy, trivial matter. But I think it is important. I think it is something that will help maintain the stability and longevity of the show. And right now for Patreon, I have several tiers offered. I have the $2 and $5 tiers if you want to get involved at a basic level and participate in the community, be part of Q&A, exclusive Q&A, and be able to ask future guests questions, basically pose questions, and actually play a part in future guest selection as well. Sometimes I will give patrons a choice. There's also a new tier, which is the masterclass tier. If you are truly serious about podcasting, whether it's magic or not, if you're truly serious about production, the art of interviewing, I think I have a lot of experiences that I can share with you and we can do it in a series of one-on-one coaching sessions and calls. Of course, free to enjoy the podcast as you wish. This is always going to be a free endeavor, but in case you would like to go an extra mile, the Humans of Magic Patreon support is much appreciated. Now, having said all that, let's get back to our regular programming. I just wanted to start off by asking you about three letters, specifically CCC. What can you tell me about the Cologne Conjurer's Circle? What is that about? So that's literally almost before my time. So also CCC stands for Chaos Computer Club, which is like a group of hackers in Germany, basically. And then the magic version was just the team that exists in Cologne. So there was always like a, a team leak, if you want to take it for uh, in, in, in Germany. At some point, they even gave a qualification to a team pro tour, I think. And there was, that was like, there were subdivisions and there was one in, in Western Germany where Cologne is. And a bunch of people that, I, that basically taught me how to play Magic, they had this team. And yeah, I, I was invited and I played, I mean, I don't know, five or six match days, maybe. Eventually that, that whole thing stopped, but yeah. Yeah, that okay. was just basically the group of people that initially taught me how to play and got me into tournaments. Let's talk about that. So I think you were, is it 94 or 95 that you started playing Magic the Gathering, roughly? So, yeah, like, I think the Homelands pre-release was kind of like the, the first 
set release that I played in. Okay. I don't know exactly when that was, but roughly around that time, I think. And I, I'm intensely curious. I know you touched on this in maybe past interviews, but you grew up in Cologne, Germany, which is not a huge city, but still one of the larger cities in Germany and West Germany. Um, how does someone find Magic the Gathering in Cologne? Like, it just seems like a, an unlikely place, given that it was the 90s and Magic still seemed to be uh, heard about more in the United States. Like, how did that yeah, come I mean, about? I think it usually just finds you, right? That, that's how it happened to me. I, I was playing some, uh, some German version of Dungeons and Dragons with some uh, friends at school. I must have been like 16 then, I would guess. And one of them had picked up Magic and then he showed us and then we started to play. And then we started to play at school and I wanted to play more. And then I found a local shop and then there were tournaments and yeah, I started to befriend people that were hanging out in the shop. And yeah, eventually I got into that group and then I started to play more with them because uh, the guys that showed me at school, they either weren't interested at all or just were very casual and I just wanted to play um, the week, the weekly tournaments in, in the shop. So I moved on and played with these guys. And then I got kind of lucky there because these people were already pretty competitive. Uh, Frank Adler won the, I think it was Mirage Sealed Deck Pro Tour in Atlanta, which was like, I think the only pre-release Pro Tour that they ever did. Like actually no one in the tournament knew the guards. Uh, he won that one and he was playing there and then there were other people that they always went to German nationals and there was this DCI ranking back then. And a bunch of them were usually in the top 10 in Germany. And yeah, and, and these people kind of got me hooked into tournament play. I want to go, I definitely want to go deep into that, but I also want to know like, how, how did you like your disposition appears to be that of a very competitive player or competitive person? Like, did you do things before Magic the Gathering that were of a competitive nature, like just growing up? Mm, not really. I played a lot of uh, football or, or soccer for our American friends, um, but not really competitive. I mean, I played in the, in the same club and it wasn't a really good club or something. Randomly, the age bracket I was in, we were reasonably good, but I was definitely not one of the better players. And then eventually around 15 or 16, I was actually playing a lot, like five to six times a week, maybe. But uh, eventually it got physically dangerous if you want to take like a lot of other people were just taking it way too serious and then i kind of got bored with that and i moved on from like i quit playing for a club and at that point dirk moved uh to cologne to do his civil service and we were just playing pickup group games at the university so that's probably as uncompetitive as it gets that was just to hang out and have fun so not really. Magic was probably the first game. Was there any thought as to making football? Uh, I know you said you quit, but was there any chance of making football like a a career or no. something more competitive? No, I just was no. technically fine and technically very good, I think, but I was just never fast enough and I was never physical enough. Like I never had this idea that if I throw myself on the ground and like make this tackle, like that was just never interesting to me it, it seemed like it was better to protect my skin so no i was okay. never and, and i i was fine in that team and we were an okay team but like there was never a chance to do that professionally okay so when you found magic like were you just naturally 
finding yourself very good at it? Like, is that is that because generally speaking, I find that for a lot of people, they get really into something when they see some promising results. Like, is that is that how it was like for you when you first approached the game? It's a long time ago, but I assume so. Yeah, I mean, I, I like mess. I like probabilities. Like this kind of stuff always has has, has been pretty easy for me. And yeah, I, I did reasonably well in my early tournaments. Like I won. I don't even know what I did in local tournaments, but I definitely did reasonably well. And I won like an early Pro Tour qualifier, which qualified me for, I think, a Pro Tour in New York. And I must have been 16 or 17 at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually, so back then there was a juniors division and I chose to play the juniors division. Like they gave me the choice if I wanted to play juniors division or masters division. And at that point I was like, okay, I mean, this is my first Pro Tour. These people are probably insanely good. I, won't have a chance, so I'll just play the juniors division, where you only got scholarship money instead of real money, which was kind of useless for me because education is free in Germany. But I mean, I didn't really think about it that way at that point. So I played the juniors division there and I actually played against a bunch of really good people. Like uh, I played against Brian Kibler, Eric Phillips, I think Jamie Park. Like if you if you read the, these, like that was only an eight round tournament, I think, and I finished top 16 or something. But then if you if you read look at these names a couple of years later they were a lot of them were actually really good magic players and on the great train and playing a lot of protos what was it like to be so young and to travel to the united states and play in your first pro tour like i obviously we have records of coverage or written coverage or like stories but like what was it like if you could put yourself back then in the time machine like what 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 was going through your mind at that time I honestly, it's too long ago. I, I don't know <laughs> that anymore, but it was definitely nothing usual for me. It was definitely the first, like, I'm not sure if it was the first time I was in an airplane, but it was definitely the first time I went to the US. And I think the only uh, reason my parents were okay with that was because this Frank Adler guy was traveling with me and he was like the, an older trustworthy person. And he, I think he actually had to sign like, like back then you needed some sort of visa and, and he had to sign as my guardian or something. Okay, because otherwise, your guardian. Uh, yeah, 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 otherwise underage, I don't think that would have even worked. But yeah, I mean, I assume it was strange. I'm pretty sure that no one in my school class ever went to the US at that point. So, I mean, yeah. it, it just wasn't coming to air travel at that point. I mean, it was somewhat common, I guess, but not like today where just everyone has yeah. uh, flies every other as a, as a year or something. That was definitely not the case back then, I don't think. Can you describe some of the, the, the folks a bit more like that you're working with in Germany at the time? Because you mentioned uh, you, you, you mentioned uh, Frank, uh, Dirk Babarowski is somebody else, right? And was it also, did you, had you already started working with Marco Bloom? Like, can you describe mm, him a little bit? That, that started a little bit later. So, so initially when I started to learn magic, Dirk and Marco were both not in, in Cologne. And that was a group, it was like... Um, Frank Adler, Stefan Radermacher, Tim Glöckner, Thomas Esser. Like, it was a bunch of people. It, most of them played a proto here and there, but I don't think outside of Frank, no one really had any super good results. But on a, on a German level, these people were very good and people knew who they were. And they always played all the German nationals, did reasonably well there. Some of them actually traveled to the first pro tour, I think, in New York, where you actually could just show up and then, uh, and then play. There were no invites for that. I think two or three of them went there, but that was also before my time. I, I wasn't really playing at that point. But yeah, I, I probably doesn't make too much sense to talk about those guys because I'm pretty sure all of them quit playing Magic by now. And uh, 
I don't think these name names pop up. I just really want to know, like, if you can. I know it's I know it's hard because it's such a long time ago. But like, what are some of the foundation or key things you learned as a as a big as a magic player from these guys? Well, I mean, first of all, if you want to improve, especially if you want to improve fast, you need to find better people. Like, you need to lose. Like, if you're just always the the best player in your group, it's pretty difficult to improve. And like, these people were beating the crap out of me for sure back then. Like, they were way better than I was, especially Frank. And then. I mean, obviously, I had no idea what, what limit it was early on. And some of them were actually really good limited players. They were drafting a bunch. They were playing a lot of sealed deck. And that's something I had to learn. Like, I had to learn to put... Like, there was a, another friend of mine, Stefan Walkaiser, from a nearby town. He was actually one of the first people who would be putting 17 or 18 lands into 40-card limited decks. And that was not a common thing. Like, even the Pro Tour that Dirk won, that was, like, I think Tempest only draft. And I actually finished top 16 there as well. Like people were playing like 14, 15 lands and just every one drop they could find and stuff. And there were a bunch of people that were just way further than that already. And uh, I learned a lot from these people. That's that's amazing. Like, so there were basically insights about how to play magic properly or maybe how to play magic in different ways that you just don't get exposed to unless you work with these people. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, this is basically before the internet. I mean, there's no World Wide Web. There was like Usenet groups. There were a bunch of Usenet groups on uh, on US servers, which are like university servers, which I actually had access to because both my father is a computer scientist and he was working for like a research facility and they had a standing connection to the US, which was pretty rare back then. And then um, another friend of mine who I played a lot with locally, I'm not even sure what he studied, but he later on actually moved to San Diego in like 2000 or something to finish his studies there. And he had a lot, lot of contacts in the US and he was always grabbing like the newest PTQ deck lists from, from like back then it was the Dojo was the, the first site. But even before that, it was just Usenet news groups basically. And he had access to all of that and he always grabbed decks from there and we talked about them and playtested a little bit and yeah, that that all, all of that like information was just so much more difficult to get hold of than it is today like today you just go to mtg goldfish or anything else and you just see all these deck lists and you see all the tournaments and back then that stuff was actually difficult to find and a lot of people just didn't have access to that so actually having that advantage was was pretty nice so when you and your friend found information on the dojo or on Usenet, like, did you, did you, uh, share it with the rest of the team? Cause it, it to me, it, it, it would seem like it's just, nobody else has that information in your area other than you and your friend, right? Yeah. But we were always talking about it with other people. It was like a lot of the time back then we were just building Necropotence decks because that was like the, the black summer or whatever it was called when just you had to play Necropotence. There were some people trying to beat Necropotence, but realistically you only beat Necropotence by having a better Necropotence deck. And then, yeah, we were always trying to get like the latest technology from, from there and then play test and yeah, improve that stuff. Were you an outgoing person? Like I would imagine for someone to like interact with strangers on the internet or on Usenet, like, is that, is that just like, is that because you really wanted the information for magic or are you just like a person that kind of is, is naturally okay with doing that? Well, those were mainly news groups, right? So people were posting their deck lists or they were writing tournament reports. Like it was less like chatting or something. I don't think there was much chatting involved. 
it was just people would post something and then maybe there would be a discussion or something. But back then my English wasn't great either. So I, I don't think I participated much in these discussions. I was just uh, leeching the information. <laughs> I'm asking because uh, I talked to one of our mutual friends and he had a very fond memory of you and how he first saw you on the Usenet boards. He said that you posted something like, hey, I'm Kai Bude. Uh, this is, I'm looking for playtest partners. Like, this is my address. <laughs> Like, it's like, that's why I'm asking, because it seems like you're just really putting yourself out there at the time. I don't even know if you remember that, but he certainly did. I yeah. do not know. It seems pretty unlikely to find anyone in Germany to be able to play this on, on an American news group. Right. But that's I mean, right. There's no, there's no spell table magic online. So I, I don't know if you were no. doing that while you were in the US already. I have, I don't know. No, what no, time. definitely not. No, I was... Okay. Yeah, that was, I went to the U.S. for this uh, tournament in New York. And then the next time I went to the U.S. must have been like three or four years later, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, our mutual friend just said that you posted all your personal info on Usenet. <laughs> you, you just said, hey, I'm Kai Buda. I'm looking for playtest partners. Here's my address. And uh, <laughs> he still remembers it to this day. So it must have made an impression on somebody. So. <laughs> yeah, that seems pretty harmless, honestly. I don't think I yeah. mind doing that today either. I mean, what, what's going to happen? Uh, well, I mean, the internet now is very different. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so... but like, if people really wanted to, they could probably just search it and find it somewhere, I would think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, uh, that doesn't seem to be a problem. Yeah. Uh, so you, you played your first Pro Tour, and had you already moved to Hamburg by then, or was it after? That was way after, yeah. Like, my first Pro Tour was this uh, junior one in New York. And then I actually, so that was the last junior event. And then the top 32 from there got an invite to the next Masters Pro Tour. But the next Masters Pro Tour was somewhere in the US. So I asked Wizards of the Coast if they could move it to the second or third next Pro Tour, which was Mainz in Germany, because obviously that was a lot more convenient for me. Uh, they actually did that. So I played this, this Pro Tour in Mainz. Um, I made second day, but I didn't make top 32. And then I wasn't qualified for the Pro Tour for maybe two years or something. And then I eventually won a, a qualifier back. And at that point, when I won that qualifier, uh, Dirk had already moved to Cologne for his civil service, and we were playing a lot of Magic. And Dirk also qualified for the same Pro Tour, and this was the, the Tempest Limited in Chicago, which Dirk actually won. And I think that was his first Pro Tour. And going into this, we were like, yeah, I mean, we have no idea how good other people were, right? Because it's really difficult to compare. Like, we weren't going to, to Grand Prix at that point. Like, we thought we were good. At least we could compare ourselves on, like, a national level. And we felt like we were quite good in that regard. But, like, there was a chance that the Americans, which was way better than us. But then when we played the tournament, we were like, oh, whoa, this is, uh, <laughs> we're actually pretty decent at this. So, yeah, I mean, Dirk won, I finished top 16, and then we thought, like, okay, maybe we should go to more tournaments. And then we started to go to more GPs uh, that year, and we were both then qualified for all the Pro Tours. And that was then, like, that year I had really strong runs on the European GP circuit. I think there were five, and I played all of them, and I finished second, first, 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 and didn't make day two in the fifth, so I had a super strong run there. Dirk did, kept doing well on the Pro Tours, and then um, the last event of that season was Worlds 99 in Japan, and I actually won that one, which also got me player of the year. Dirk did also pretty well, and then the German team finished second in the team event, 
which had Marco Blume and Patrick Mello on it, which were two other friends from Hamburg. And then that kind of made Marco move to Cologne for a year to study. And we were playing a lot of magic when Dirk, Marco and me were there. And then eventually Marco moved back and Dirk moved back to Northern Germany. And then I actually also moved to Hamburg also to study, but also because I wanted to play magic there. That was. I see. So they, the three of you were actually in Cologne and, and it sounds like Marco was in Cologne because of a big reason. It was the fact that you and Dirk were there oh, and, then, sure, and yeah. then, and then, and then, and then eventually all of you, uh, relocated to Hamburg. That's, uh, that's quite the dedication. Like, so by then you've already decided, like you've already won a, some PTs you've already done quite well. So it's like, is magic just your, you decide like magic is going to be your career. Is that, is that how it's going to be or. Well, I didn't decide like that at that point, but I definitely wanted to play magic professionally for the next couple of years. I mean, at that point, I mean, it was, it was, you couldn't be certain that magic would survive in the way it did. Right. Like it was still a relatively new game. And I mean, it could have just died. But yeah, for now, I was definitely locked into playing a lot of magic and definitely magic was more important than studying for me at that point. Did you have a lot of interactions with uh, Wizards of the Coast or the folks that were organizing the, the pro tours? Like, what was that like back then? Like just, just the DCI and the tournament body or the, I mean, like the whole thing? It's very similar to today and it's a lot of the same people still running the stuff. I mean, Scott Larrabee is still around. He was around in a similar position back then. I mean, I had some contact, but I mean, nothing abnormal or something. I mean, I was talking to them and I got to know them obviously because I was at every event, but I mean, nothing special or anything. Mm -hmm. So it's actually still a lot of the same people and the interactions still feel similar even today. Like, so yeah, over yeah, the yeah. decades. Like actually all the, 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 the structure of the tournaments is surprisingly similar as 20 years ago. Like. Mm -hmm. Someone only played a pro tour 20 years ago and then went to a pro tour today. I don't think they would need to get many explanations. It's, mm -hmm. it's basically still the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's two things I actually want you to explain for the listeners. Cause some, some listeners may not have been following magic coverage or even have been alive <laughs> back then. I I'm, I'm more in your age group. So I, I, I definitely, uh, I'm in my forties, so I'm definitely, uh, uh, you know, had a lot of history with magic just as a, as an observer, but I think you have talked about in the past, how that era of magic, there was just so much information asymmetry. Like there was just so much information that was not there. You had talked about like, when you go to tournaments, it's really about like, is someone going to break something? Is, are the other pros, like you're worried about the other pros, not worry about the average magic player, because the gap was so huge between a, a pro or a testing team versus a uh, a regular magic player. So can you tell me a, a bit more about that? Like just in terms of like pre-internet, like what it was like to actually prepare for magic tournaments and what you expect when you go into a magic tournament or a pro tour. So, I mean, internet started to exist at that point, but I think magic online probably maybe 2001, 2002 or something, but then usually the sets would be heavily delayed on magic online too. So it was somewhat dodgy for practice. Uh, there were other online programs like apprentice, I think, but in general, so, so today you have these big super teams with like 10 to 15 people. And their main goal is to just get the biggest advantage over the average proto player. And back then it felt like 
the pros thought that they already have a huge advantage over the average pro player and they just want to beat the other pros and yeah as you said there wasn't internet like even when the format was kind of old like weeks or even months old there was still a chance that someone would break it and just show up with the deck you had never seen so um usually the tournaments were either so they were there were five protos per year two of them were only limited so actually uh, 15 rounds of draft so obviously that was not an issue and then one was usually block constructed and the other was extended and um ex extended yeah they were off like there was one extended pro tour the one that bob maher won in chicago like i was talking with yui the other day uh, about that so no one in the tournament played the best deck like the best deck in that field would have been necropotence so, so you play four necropotence four demonic consultation four duress four uh, illusions of grandeur four um donate four force of wills four brainstorms four dark ritual mm -hmm. and we were thinking what percentage to win the tournament do you have if you play that deck in, the, uh, in that tournament I mean, you were thinking that you're probably like 75% to actually win the photo if you had that deck and knew how to play it. Because it was just like everyone was playing decks that weren't even anywhere close to that. That deck was so broken. And that kind of, yeah, I mean, there were a bunch of tournaments where just someone showed up with a really good deck. And especially Dirk was really good at building uh, these kind of decks. And like for two or three photos, we definitely had, I mean, probably just a better deck than anyone else. Like for the for the world championships that I won, um, world championship back then were um, three formats. Usually day one was either block constructed or no, day one was always standard, day two was always draft, and then day three was either extended or block constructed. I think that's usually how it worked. And that one was extended, and our extended deck was just so much better. The only problem is that Dirk was really good at building these decks, but then he wasn't all that good at picking the correct deck to play which I was really good at, I think, and I, I still am pretty good at that. And mm. I, I, I was usually the guy playing his decks, and quite often he would end up playing something else, which usually was fine too, but there were definitely a bunch of tournaments where he just missed our best decks. For, there was also one um, New Orleans, which I won with uh, a blue-red Illusion Stone deck that Dirk also built. And there were three people in the tournament playing that deck. I finished first, Benedict Klauser finished fifth, and then another friend of us finished like 24th or something. And Dirk didn't even go because he didn't think we had a good deck or something. <laughs> <laughs> so what what was it about Dirk? Like, did he, did he, was it just, did he have some sort of, uh, like, obviously he's a very gifted deck builder, but did he have some lack of confidence about just seeing the deck through or believing in his own creation? No, but I don't even know how to explain that in English all that well, but he was always careless like in the team tournaments that marco dirk and me played these three versus three team protos we always wrote his deck list for dirk because with dirk you had like almost a 50 50 chance that he would make an error submitting his deck list and like started with a game loss or something but like okay. he has so like there was at least one draft where he had to play his entire pool because he didn't mark down his deck list and then he had to play with like 65 cards in game one or something like uh -huh. There, there were a lot of these things with Dirk. <laughs> so I don't think it was a lack of confidence or anything, but 
I also don't okay. think he's as competitive as I am. Like, I don't think he wanted to win as badly as I wanted. So that was probably something too. I, I'm trying to make this, uh, maybe this is a bad analogy, but I'm thinking about like somebody like Michael Flores, who is like a very good deck builder, but not ever like a, a super accomplished magic player. But then I don't think that no. really applies for Dirk because no. Dirk has one PT. So yeah, 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 Dirk has won three PTs, top eighted two more at least, I think. Yeah. And he's, he's a gifted player. as well. Yeah. Like he's a, yeah. he's a very, very good magic player. Yeah. But you're just saying that he can be a little bit, it, I guess, I guess the, the nice way to say it is that as a team, you complement each other quite well because yeah. you have different strengths, right? So let's <laughs> focus at times. Let's put it like that. Okay. So you're very focused. Like how, how is that, is that just something that's been with you since day one? Like how, like, I'm, I'm wondering your approach to magic over the decades, like, would you say that you're a different person or are you always the same person, but just making refinements? No, I must've changed. I mean, it's just such a long period. I mean, I was like back in the days when I like in this time between like 99 and 2004, when I played professionally, I was playing so much. Like I played a crazy amount of magic. Like there was literally no day where I didn't play magic. I don't think, I mean, probably a day or two here and there, but it was very rare. Yeah. I, uh, I understand that you have always been known as someone whose strength is preparation and learning from mistakes and testing. Um, somebody told me that, which is surprising because I, I always thought before I did the, this interview, uh, doing research that you were just like intellectually superior or stronger than everybody else, which makes you one of the, the best magic players. But from talking to some of your friends or previous partners, like uh, testing partners, it's like they said, Kai is the strongest at preparation, learning from his mistakes. And you wouldn't be the best player drafting a new set, but you would be the best after doing like 500 drafts. Like you basically are like an optimization machine. Is that a fair statement? Oh yeah, for sure. Like if you took a new set or even just a new game and then gave a person like maybe an hour to learn it or something and then play a tournament, I would never like from the people I know, probably John Finkel would be by far the best person to do that. Like he picks up, like he figures stuff out so fast and he learns so fast and that's definitely not me. But yeah, like my, I, I'm always, I've always been really good at preparation. I've always been really good at drawing the correct conclusions from, from preparation. Like in the last 20 years, like usually when you're playing in these big pro tour testing teams, you end up with like two or three decks. Like it's very rare that the, our entire team plays one deck. Like usually people are split up a little bit. And I think I've maybe not picked the correct deck once or twice. I think twice at most, probably. And all the other times I've, I've played the correct deck, which I, I think, I mean, that that's a pretty good skill to have, I think. What's the secret behind that? I mean, I've been doing this for so long and I guess it's just good, good judgment after all the time. Like I'm re re relatively good at like, for example, I hadn't played modern in years, but then when I started to play this for Barcelona, I think I had a pretty good idea what the field would look like and, and what's needed, like how, how you want to attack that field. It's still something I find really incredible because I know that it's hard to look at ourselves and be really objective because we only have our own reality to draw from. But like, just, I'm just thinking about it. Like you're you were amazing at preparation while well, everybody else was trying to prepare just as hard maybe even harder or like not sleeping mm -hmm. uh no 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 i don't think that was the case 
Like oh okay, back so you really then, did just outwork everybody at that time. Right. Like back then, I think we were preparing a lot more than other people. Like for example, for these team protos, Dirk, Marco, and me would usually fly two weeks early into the US and then either play test with Eugene Harvey, Osip Lebedovich, and some other people in New York. And then once or twice in At Atlanta with Joe Crosby and, and his friends. And like other people just didn't do that back then. Like other people didn't, this, this whole testing housing, like we did that way before uh, other people were doing that. I think our, our preparation was in general just more and better than what other people were doing. And then when I top eight it, we were playtesting top eight matchups and talking about sideboard stuff. And at least my impression was that a lot of people were just going to a bar and get drunk because they top eight it. And that was just never what we were doing. Like we just wanted to win. <laughs> just putting in the work. And uh, how long did it take the rest of the world or the Americans to, uh, to catch up and realize like, hey, these guys are doing uh, a lot of preparation. That might be why they're, they're, they're winning. Yeah, I think around the time when I quit in like 2004, 2005, I mean, the main reason that I quit was that everyone else around me quit. Like there were a bunch of people in Hamburg with Dirk, Marco, Christian Lewis, Patrick Meadow, Dominic Hotto. All of these people quit because they either got bored or like had real life stuff going on. And uh, all of these people quit. And then I just didn't really have played as partners anymore. And it just wasn't fun anymore. But I think around that time, it like the, the playing field got definitely more level. Like other people mm. were doing similar amount of preparation as we were doing. Mm -hmm. What what made you come back? Because not all of your friends came back. So I mean, first the, the first few years after I quit, I couldn't really. So obviously I could have played, but then I would have had to play PTQs and GPs and maybe get a pro tour invite. But then uh, I think. 2008 or 2009, I got voted into the Hall of Fame, and suddenly I had all these invites again. And mm. since then, I've been playing one or two events per year, usually the ones that are closer to me. For a while, I was living in, in Curaçao for, for work reasons, which is in the Caribbean. So then I would play like one or two um, tournaments in North America, and otherwise I would try to play the ones in Europe. But yeah, I mean, so I guess 2005, I also needed to break from Magic because I, I had played so much. But still, like, playing these tournaments and preparing for these tournaments is a lot of fun for me. And time time allowing, I would always... Like, if I had these invites, I probably would have still played one or two per year. But then mm -hmm. reality was, in 2006, I just wasn't qualified for anything anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and I understand that um, every Pro Tour, every high-level event you play, you prepare... The heck out of it because i know there are some players who are in the hall of fame that they get these invites and they don't put in a ton of preparation they just kind of show up because they have the invite but i understand that's not true for you right like every pro tour you're you're basically preparing and taking I, it very seriously i've done that like maybe once or twice like definitely there was like one world championship in paris where i just basically didn't have any idea what the cards were doing back then world championships were just another pro tour basically 400 uh, player events they were just uh. called world championship i definitely did that once or twice but yeah usually i'm also too competitive to do that i think like i don't want to go there and feel like i'm dead meat and everyone is just beating up on me and then yeah again also this whole preparation stuff is actually fun for me like especially this this modern preparation going into proto barcelona was was just great fun 
Like I think the format is great right now. There's tons of decks. There's nothing oppressive going on. Yeah, I mean, I actually really enjoyed that. So, I, I listened to your podcast with uh, Andrew Cunio, and yeah. uh, you had a very good explanation for like why you actually think modern is a uh, is a balanced format, and I, I really quite enjoyed that. You don't have to go through all the reasons again because you did that podcast, but I, I enjoyed your your reasoning and kind of how you arrived at uh, Timor Rhinos. Like it's very it's very, uh, how do I say, like, it's very methodical and very disciplined, like, form of planning and trying to figure out what the best deck was. And it sounds like you guys did a ton of testing, right? So, oh, I, I think we, so our exit sheet probably had about 6,000 games locked or something. I don't know. We played a yeah. ton. Yeah. But I yeah. assume that the other teams did the same. I would be very surprised if the other big teams don't have a similar amount of games. Yeah, um, who was on your team? Was was it Aspiring Spike and a whole bunch of people? So the core is basically always the same. Also, a bunch of these people uh, don't. I mean, William Jensen is now working for Wizards of the Coast, for example. But like, the core is Reed Duke, Gabriel Nassif, um Andrew Cunio, but he doesn't. Like, basically, he doesn't want to travel for for Magic tournaments anymore. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, there's, it's just a bunch of people that I know for a long time. And like, I've always been testing with this core group of, of Redute, William Jensen, Gabriel, Owen Turtenwald, these people. Mm -hmm. And yeah, mm -hmm. it's basically still the same team, but obviously a bunch of people quit. And then we added a, a bunch of new people. Like now there's uh, Eli Cassis, who is super valuable. There's Jim Davis. And then for this Pro Tour, um, Aspiring Spike joined us. Um, I'm pretty sure we would be super happy to work with him again in the future. But I mean, with the new Pro Tour format, it's actually just difficult to qualify for this stuff. So you kind of have to look at event by event now. While in the past, anyone that was on their team was just qualified for, for all the events usually, because everyone mm -hmm. was on this kind of gravy train, as we called it. But now mm -hmm. that that doesn't exist anymore, you kind of have to evaluate from event to event. Or oh, uh, Louis, like Louis Scott Vargas, Sam Pardee. So I think the team is actually called Channel Fireball now. It used to be called Pantheon. And it was sponsored by Star City Games for a while. You, like, if John Finkel would actually play a Pro Tour again, he would also be on that team, I'm pretty sure. But unfortunately, until they have all limited events, it's going to be pretty difficult to get him to play a Pro Tour again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so John, John, and uh, uh, John Finkel is basically kind of retired, right? Unless there's a there's a all limited event. And you mentioned Cuneo is like. Uh, has travel restrictions because of his career and life, so uh, it's not quite the same. Uh, yeah. I think it's less career and life, more that he just doesn't want to travel. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he, I just made just, assumptions. He's <laughs> just not a big fan of traveling, which I mean, it's fair. Like you, you get tired pretty, pretty easily. I mean, yeah. So back then, I didn't mind that much because I wasn't really doing anything else. Like I didn't have like a full-time job or something, so mm -hmm. I was probably gone every second weekend for a Magic tournament, and that was okay. But like now. If I have to like, if I want to play a tournament in the U.S. and I'm taking like a week of vacation from work for that, and then that's not really a vacation. I mean, these tournaments are super stressful. Like Barcelona uh, after day two, I was more tired than any day working in the last two years or something. Mm -hmm. And then you also like, okay, this is Barcelona, but if it was in North America, I would take a week of vacation and spend like 50 hours of that in airplanes, which mm -hmm. hardly counts as vacation. Like. I just wouldn't want to do that four or five times a year and, and 
use all all my uh, annual vacation on that. I mean, that's right. not sustainable, right. I don't think. So you didn't go to the Pro Tours in the US earlier this year, right? Because the travel and everything is just too much. I also, that, that's also why in Germany, I have some, some health issues to take care of, yeah. Like basically, yeah. I, I, there was no chance. But my plan was always to play this European one. And with my, so I get one Hall of Fame invite per, per season. And it right. kind of makes sense to use it on the last Pro Tour because then I can use my next Hall of Fame invite on the first one of the next season and then maybe change some more invites and qualify for for a whole season. Okay. So that's, that's... that's also like a little bit of strategic value there. But yeah, I, I was yeah. definitely going to pick the European Pro Tour. No matter. If, it, if the European Pro Tour was the first one, I would have tried to play that. And by the way, belated congrats, you made history. I believe you're the only person to have ever top aided a pro tour in over four decades. So I'm like, from when to when is the decade? That, that's a important question. I, I guess there. I'm just saying nineties is a decade. 2000s is a decade, right? 2000 to 2010, 2010 to 2020 is another one. And yeah. So that's a problem decade. there, right? Because two, like if, if you if you count the decade from 2011 to 2020, then I only made I made top four in one of these arena photos of these music arena music championships, right? Which I think Wizards counts it as a top finish, but I didn't top eight the Pro Tour because the last one I top eighted before was uh, 2010 in Amsterdam. 2010. That's that's still the 2010 to yeah, 2020 I decade. Mean, yeah. Yeah. You can make a pretty good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I guess I guess that's not as important as me asking you. Like, how important do you think? Do you think about your legacy, like your career? Do you is that something that ever comes to mind, or are you just about competing? No, I mean it's definitely pretty cool. I mean, it's extremely unlikely that anyone ever puts a run like me together again. I mean, obviously they could change the format of the Pro Tour, and it's obviously super difficult to compare events in 2000 to events now. But that anyone comes close to winning seven of these big tournaments, it's pretty unlikely, I think. And I mean, that feels pretty nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I got to go back a little bit because I mentioned, I, I said, you know, describe to me like what it was like, uh, you know, the level of play in the old Pro Tours. I also want you to explain what it's what it was like, what the actual team pro tours were, because I know a lot of people now they don't under they don't they've never experienced something like this. Or when we have team events now, it's really just like one versus one, but like you're sitting next to each other, like and telling each other how to like play the, your teammate how to play your first land or something. Like, what was the actual team pro tour format back then? So the the team pro tour format was seal deck on day one. So you would get a sealed pool, you would build three decks, and then you would play against three other people. So for day two, it was Team Rochester Draft. Rochester Draft is different from Booster Draft. You're only drafting one pack at a time, and it's open on the table. So you see what everyone is taking, and for this team format, you know who is playing whom, because you only play one match with each draft, and you play the guy across the table. So you kind of, like you, you see what the other team is taking, which colors go into what seat and what the good cards are. And it's a lot more strategic than anything else, I would say. Because it is just super important that you keep track of what they have and you build the the correct anti-deck. Because it's like in it's it's a bit like constructed, like in limited 
like if your opponent is like big green creatures, then there's usually some color that's very good against that. Like mm -hmm. then you, you can give all like the pacifisms or or whatever to to, uh, to your guy in that seat. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is that usually most teams have this set plan of colors for the draft, and then sometimes you could guess a little bit that they would be playing the same colors in seal deck in these seats and you wanted to do wanted to be a little bit tricky there but yeah in general you just build three decks try to make them evenly powerful and then every two rounds you would actually get a new pool so day one was six rounds and you would, would get three different seal deck pools so you only played two matches with every deck mm -hmm. and then there was a cut to day two and then day two was i believe five rounds of draft so you would do one draft, play against one match against the other team, next draft, play one match, next draft, etc. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, this draft format, it's like a little bit difficult to say because regular Rochester draft is probably just a bad format if all eight people know what they're doing at the table. Because you see what everyone is taking and if, like, basically this can be, like, bots would be best at this, most likely. like. There shouldn't be anything random happening because you want to be friendly to your neighbors. So it will turn into a solved format if you, if exactly. you really yeah. know. Like, for example, there was one format where black was the best color, and then the other two decks, the non-black decks, were blue-white and red-green. And, like, if everyone knew what they were doing at the table, you would have black, blue-white, black, red-green, black, blue-white, black, red-green. And that's how the table should always split up every single time. And I think that's why Wizards of the Coast decided to abandon Rochester draft. Because, like, the good thing about Magic is that there is random stuff. I mean, that's actually what keeps Magic alive, I think. I mean, we, otherwise we should be playing Go or Chess. Like, if you mm -hmm. want to have full information games, these games are probably better than Magic. But what, mm -hmm. Magic, what makes Magic great is that there's random stuff going on, and you need to, you need to be aware of that. And, and yeah, like, Team Rochester, or Rochester Draft doesn't really do that. Team Rochester is a little bit different in because of the team aspect. But then another problem is that it takes so much time for everything around because you do one draft, then you do deck registration, deck building, and then you play one match, which I think that was why they didn't want to do it anymore in the end. Like the five rounds of drafts, it just took so much time and you don't get to play all that much. For me personally, that was always great because I like the drafting and deck building part probably better than the actual playing part. Mm -hmm. So that was by far my my most favorite format, but mm. oh well. Do, do you know if other players felt similar to you? Like oh. just in terms of they actually enjoyed playing it and even if it took longer. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of people that like the drafting itself better than the playing, I think. Like I, mm -hmm. like uh, William Jensen was in uh, Brock Parker. Like William Jensen was playing, back then he was playing with Brock Parker and Matt Lindy. And all of them are huge limited players, and they definitely like the, the drafting itself better than the playing as well. Mm. Mm. So it's almost like it's uh, it'd be better if like uh, an AI could like just play the matches for you, and <laughs> you could just build. I mean, I'm not like I, I'm 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 a huge fan of these auto battlers that do exactly that. Like there's this Hearthstone Battlegrounds auto battler, which yeah. is exactly that. Like you only do drafting and deck building decisions and then ais do the playing mm, which i'm okay. probably playing more of that than magic limited these days for yeah. that exact reason 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you're really speaking to like that tension between um, how watchable something is or coverage versus actually participating. Because I, I would imagine that's also why um, Wizards emphasize more constructed formats over the past oh. little while, right? That's got to be one of the main reasons. For sure. Limited is just, I mean, at least for me, limited is not good for coverage. Like a lot of limited games, one guy plays a 3-3 creature, the other guy plays a 4-4 creature, and then some 2-2 flyer attacks 10 times, and that's that's it. Like, mm -hmm. that's just, it's just way more exciting to watch constructed magic, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, at least that's true for me. I usually, I mean, so if I'm not playing a pro tour, I'm generally watching all of the coverage stream, but I'm a lot more excited about the construct constructed part than, than the limited rounds. Mm -hmm. Like for limited, I like the draft coverage, but even then, like the draft itself, I mean, sometimes it's super interesting. But like, like for example, I was covered in the in the last Pro Tour one of my drafts. My first pick was a black card. My second pick was a black green gold card, and from there it was just take whatever card was best in black green. I mean, that's from there on, it's just not that exciting. I don't think. I mean, I'm just taking the best black green card out of every pack, and there were enough of them. To me to, to not change colors and i mean yeah that's not the most interesting tv or whatever you want to call it what what's your uh what what's what's your fondest uh set to draft like i guess there must be a lot of reasons for it, either like tournament success or like some some memorable thing from the drafts or stories like what's one that comes to mind like as one of your all-time favorites i don't think there's anything in specific really it's like, just too, I think, much, too many sets, right? Yeah, I mean, like, most formats have, like, a similar curve where, like, it's always fun for the first few drafts because then you're figuring stuff out. But it's usually fun for, like, the first 20, 30 drafts or something. But, like, quite often at that point, it just gets boring because you're doing kind of the same thing. Yeah, like, usually these you... cube formats are probably a little bit better because you can do so much different stuff. But, yeah, it's it's usually, like, the first 20 drafts almost for every set are, are, are super exciting. And then it just slowly gets more more and more boring. And to be fair, back in the days, the sets were built less with limited in mind. And I think, I mean, there's also problems with that, with, the, with how they're building the sets now. But in general, limited is just more fun in the last 10 years or whatever than between 1995 and 2000 five or something like back then the sets just weren't designed with limited in mind and quite often there were just so many unplayable comments and yeah that, that also definitely... means that if you know something special that others don't like you're just breaking it or you just have such an incredible edge right especially when there are still players back then that didn't know how to draft I assume. yeah yeah for sure also there were a bunch of sets i i have i, I don't think that's a thing anymore these days and it, the, the way the packs work these days it doesn't matter anyway but back in the days, the commons were usually what you first picked because the set design was quite often that the rares were meant for constructed. And then the rares just like back then, constructed cards were more spell like, and it just like there weren't any stupid planeswalkers or creatures with like a page of text or something. Like a lot of the rares were actually bad for limited play. And then there were only three or four print runs, like how these cards were actually coming out of the printer and then if someone took a common you could usually mm -hmm. calculate what common he took because 
if you get past like a print run of eight cards and then there's one card missing, you know that that guy had to take that card from the pack. And in some of mm. these formats, if if three people in front of you took comments, you could often go like, okay, this guy picked this card, this guy picked that card, this guy picked that card. And I don't think, like, I think most pros were aware of these print runs, but definitely not everyone in these tournaments was. Ah, so even knowing like the print run and the distribution like gives you an edge, like because yes. you can you can figure that out. As yeah, you, if they you don't just knew that like the two guys in front of you picked like two blue cards, for example, when you yeah. put your card, which is like that, that's like a huge advantage. extra signals. Yeah, yeah, extra signals. <laughs> and then for uncommons, it was the same thing, but obviously with only three uncommons in the pack, that's a bit different. Like, I assume it still works the same way these days, but given how the power level is these days, rares way better than uncommons, way, way, way better than commons. Usually the first picks in limited are rares and uncommons, and that means you, it just doesn't do anything anymore. But back in, in those days, you would very, it was very common to first pick uh, common cards, and yeah, that was yeah, definitely no, you're... something... Yeah, you're you're totally right. Like there were a lot of rares back then that just did nothing, or they were like very narrow sideboard cards for constructed. Like I don't know. Like I, I know circle protection is not a rare, but it, it felt like there were a lot of cards like that that yeah, were just like was... color hosers and stuff like that. Color hosers, or then like cards that were like meant for specific constructed decks. Yeah, like, I, I don't yeah. think they design cards like that anymore these days. No, so, no. Now, now it's like the rares are actually bombs. They're actually like legendary planeswalkers or something like that. Yeah, that's totally true. Similar question: Do you have fond constructed formats or constructed blocks? Like, is that is it like formats where you guys broke it or like anything that comes to mind? I mean, I always enjoy playing these illusion stone age decks and like with necropotents, without necropotents. So I, I, I guess I like extended legacy like all these formats with bigger card pools mm. um block constructed i never liked that much like even back in the days that was just way too obvious and just everyone knew what everyone else was playing and i think mm. block constructed so block constructed means that you only build your deck from one or two sets of cards mm -hmm. so basically a lot of the rings only proto you can only play lot of the rings cards yeah and like i think in Today, the information is flowing so fast, it would be completely pointless to have a tournament like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I think I prefer modern or extended, something like that. But in general, I don't really mind too much. Like, right. for example, I'm pretty sure I would have hated to prepare for the last Pro Tour when it was obvious that was standard and just everyone was playing Raptor's Fable decks. And then, yeah. like, coverage had three different names for Raptor's decks, so it didn't look too stupid. But like yeah. it was like 65% of the field were playing essentially the same deck was like mm -hmm. maybe five to 10 cards different or something. And I mean, that gets boring super fast, obviously. But when you're, yeah, when you're preparing for formats that you, you believe are boring, like, does it change your enthusiasm, your level of preparation? Or are you, or are you just like, I'm a competitor, I'm still going to prepare the same amount, maybe more, despite no, it, how I feel about it. it. It definitely changed my motivation. Yeah. I mean, I still want to practice. I'll still playtest a bunch, but yeah, it's de like I definitely would have playtested a lot less than I playtested for the modern Proto, I think. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. actually playing modern was fun. You, there were so many playable decks. You you want to play like a league or two with every deck just to have an idea of how they work. And yeah, there was so much to do. 
So do you have a, a known uh, name in Magic Online? Like when people, do people know they're playing against Kaibude or using like an anonymous account? Uh, I have like a, I've, I think I have three accounts from back in the days or something. I don't think people know my account. Okay. Like on, on Arena, it's just Kai, but on Magic Online, it's something. Okay. It's probably better to keep it that way, right? Because yeah. the only reason I mentioned uh, Aspiring Spike is I remember he tweeted something like, he was like dropping when he was testing in leagues. He was dropping at four zero in the leagues because he wanted to hide information, which I thought was hilarious because like that's just such a like it just speaks to how like widely inf known information is where it's like that's the only thing you can do. Like there's not like and even then you guys were playing Team Rhino, so it's not like there was some super secret thing anymore, right? At least that's yeah. my assumption. So with that, I wouldn't have minded. Also, the way Magic Online deck lists are published is that they try to grab one deck list from each archetype for these deck dumps. So if you 5-0 with Rhinos, that's probably not a big problem. But uh, Spike usually plays, like he likes to play combo decks, he likes to play new decks. And if he 5-0s with like a weird deck, it gets super likely that his list gets published. So that's mm -hmm. why he didn't want to do that. But yeah, I would in general always just drop it for <laughs> it's not like I got there that often, but like, I mean, there's uh -huh. just no value in playing that last match. Like, I mean, usually you don't want to play that deck as a pro tour anyway, but like, why make it public? It's just right. not worth risking it. Right. So, um, because we've been talking a little bit about preparation and testing, um, can you tell me a little bit about more about like your all time favorite teams to be testing with? Because you have mentioned the one, the team that you're with now. Uh, a lot of folks know about Phoenix Foundation, which is, uh, you know, some of the players that you had mentioned before, like Dirk and, uh, uh, and, and others. Actually, I, is, that, is, it just, is it just Dirk? Yes. And, uh... So Phoenix Foundation was just the team name of our three-person team for these P uh, team protos. Right, right. But like, like, they, they always yeah. forced you to have a name. And like Phoenix Foundation is like from this MacGyver TV series. Oh, okay. I mean, we're just... <laughs> okay. We just really didn't want to come up with a clever name or something, so whatever. Okay, I I did watch MacGyver as a kid, but I don't. I did. I did not remember that. Okay, oh, he's working that... for the Phoenix Foundation. <laughs> okay, I well, I watched it in Taiwan when the show was uh, dubbed, so that might have had something to do with it. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, so like, what are your what are some of your most memorable teams or maybe people that you've worked with as part of the teams? Well, it's for sure like this this group of Germans that I used to work with back in the days. Like Marco Dirk, uh, Patrick Mello, Christian Lewis, Dominic Otto, basically just people in Hamburg, and they were usually qualified for all the pro tours. And I mean, yeah, that, that's when I was most successful, and that's when I had most of the fun. But I'm also like the, the testing houses with this uh, first Pension and then Channel Fireball teams. It's also it's also great. I mean, for me, that's like a really good vacation. I don't like I can play eight or ten hours of Magic per day. I like the people. Uh, fun hanging out, yeah. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't be doing that stuff. I'm, like, you definitely don't want to be playing Magic tournaments for money or something. Like, if, <laughs> if if you don't enjoy it, you really shouldn't be doing it. There's very few people in the world that should be playing Magic tournaments that have, like, a plus EV in Magic tournaments, money-wise, and I'm definitely not one of these these days, so... <laughs> I used to be, but that's 20 years ago. <laughs> okay. So, so you really, for you now, like, uh, maybe a part of it is your, your legacy 
a part of it is like your your friendships and visiting and playtesting and traveling. Um, would you say those are the well, the main main motivators? Or I guess you you want to continue building a uh, you just want to play. You want to compete, right? That's yeah. Like to protect my legacy, I should probably never be playing another tournament again, just to keep my percent percentages <laughs> yeah. high. Just retire but, on top. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just fun for me. Yeah. Like I like the people. I like like it's really fun for me to play in big tournaments. Yeah, it's just like, that's what I like to do with my vacation days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just find this so fascinating because it's really rare to see someone so dedicated to something and be at the top of something for, I don't know what you want to call that, like for 30 years, like three, four decades. Like, of course, there are some breaks in between, but it's rare, right? Because in the world of like sports or athletics, like you generally it's not a mental thing. Like when you look at certain um, pursuits like chess, even like a Magnus Carlsen, I don't know how long he's been playing, probably forever too, but like it's it's just very uncommon. And for a lot of people like me, we've never been top in our field of whatever it is we do. So like, I'm just, I guess it's like, what motivates you? Like, I guess it's just a competition or like knowing you're good at magic, but also being competitive. Like, what is it? Yeah, I was about to say, like, I'm definitely not top anymore. There, there's just no way. Like, Reed asked me that be, before Pro to Barcelona, like, where I would rank myself out of the 270 people qualified. And I said, realistically, I'm probably somewhere between the 50s and 100s best player in the tournament. That was my guess. It's obviously pretty difficult to say because with the new structure, there's a lot of people that win a qualifier and only play one event. And I don't know how many of these people that are. I assume I'm better than most of these, but then like, whatever, like the people that are currently at the top of the game, like Nathan, for example, like clearly he's a way better magic player than me right now. And it's not even close. Like that, that is. What, what makes someone better than you or allows you to create the ranking? Is it preparation? Like, what is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of preparation. I mean, like before starting to test for, for Barcelona, I hadn't played much magic like the six or eight months before. I had maybe played 10 hours total of magic or something. And I hadn't played like a physical paper tournament in three years or something or four years. And I mean, that's just, it's way different. Suddenly you can forget triggers. You need to keep track of life totals and stuff. Like there's just a lot of procedural stuff that you can, you can easily mess up. And yeah, I just don't think I'm on that level. I mean, obviously I got, so first of all, everyone in the top eight obviously got lucky, but like Javier and Simon Nielsen back to back top eight at the last events. And I'm pretty sure they needed a lot less luck than I needed to get there. So, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, like I would, I think it's realistic to say that I'm somewhere between the fifties and one hundreds best player, I would guess. Maybe I'm lower than that. I mm. kind of doubt I'm much higher than that. So I'm definitely not on top or anything. Like the last time I was on top of something was probably 2003, I think. After that, I don't think you can say that anymore. But okay. yeah, like it, it's just fun for me. Like it's just my vacation time. Like it's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually looking for, like, so for example, Andrew Cunio, he hates these testing houses. He just doesn't like, like there's just too many people on small space and like, he's just not a fan of it. And I really like it. Like I like the people, I like to hang out. And yeah, it's just some people like it, some people don't. I definitely like I, I, I don't have a problem. Like for me, that's just relaxing. Obviously the tournament itself 
is not exactly relaxing. Like that's actually fairly on the taxing side of things. But like the week before that in the Barcelona testing house was just a great time for me. Mm. Mm. But you are saying that like with enough uh, repetition or practice or preparation or getting your technical play back to where it was in the 2000s, like you could easily rival or equal some of the top players today, right? It's just a matter of how much time you're putting in. That's what, I, that's basically what you're saying. I would hope so. I mean, it's obviously difficult to say, but yeah, like if I quit my job and was playing Magic professionally, I would think that I'm, I can probably be top 10. Maybe I can be top one. Like that, that's really difficult to say. Right. But like, right. It's, I mean, it's definitely like you need to put in time. Otherwise it's just not. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I think John is just a more talented Magic player than me, but I think between 2001 and 2004 or whatever, I was just better than him. But that's just because I played so much more magic than he did. Yeah. But if he played the same amount, I think he would have been better. Mm. Was that actually a rivalry or was it just I something mean, that like media made it out to be? I mean, it's a friendly rivalry. Like I didn't really know him. I only got to know him much later when we actually tested together a bit for, for events after 2010 or something, but like there was no real rivalry or something. Mm -hmm. Did you have rivalry with any players? I guess rivalry implies that you have to be at an equal skill level, right? Because if one person's always losing, then it's not much of a rivalry. <laughs> I mean, there were definitely some people, like I kept losing to Bob Maher, for example, but like, I like Bob. I knew him back then a little bit, super nice guy. I mean, obviously I don't like losing, but I didn't have a problem. Like there was no rivalry or something. It didn't, didn't like it annoyed me to lose, obviously, but it didn't annoy me to lose against Bob. Mm -hmm. Probably mm -hmm. actually felt better to lose against Bob because I knew that he was really good. So, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Bob, obviously he made one of the most, or he had a hand in creating one of the most iconic um, invitational cards of all time, Dark Confidant. You were responsible for, or partly responsible for Void Mage Prodigy. Like, what's the story behind you and Void Mage Prodigy with so your likeness, like? First of all, yeah. you were never really responsible for these cards. That's why I said partly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so basically in these invitationals, there were 16 people qualified and everyone was to turn in their card before the event even started. And it was just like a competition of either making something super weird or something super overpowered. Mm -hmm. And the card I turned in, I mean, obviously that was never getting printed like that. It was just like, it was an enchantment for one blue mana. And then your opponent had to play with their hand face up for blue, blue sacrifice the enchantment. You could counter a spell and then for blue sacrifice, you could draw a card. So that was just strictly better than Jesus. All right. Yeah. So it's just like a built-in peak with yes. like counter spell like value. An uncounterable counter spell built in because it's just a trick. It's just like an unuse effect basically. <laughs> okay. So, so that's you what you actually submitted. Okay. Yes. And like, obviously right. that was never getting printed like that. I mean, okay. But like, I didn't think I was winning the tournament either. And mm. then, so the problem is that Wizards of the Coast can't really talk to you about the card as they actually design it, because right. usually they would do set mechanics for that. And then they would give you information that they don't want to give you, which also completely makes sense. So you kind of in the dark and just hope that they make you a good card. And I mean, mm -hmm. I assume they're trying to do so, but in, in my case, it just didn't really work out. Like there were a bunch of others that just never really saw play. Like for example, do you know what Chris Pecula originally turned in? No, you have to tell me. I, okay, I have no so idea. the card he submitted was blue, blue, one, two, three, and then 
you could sec like you could name a spell when it comes into play, and then you could sacrifice it to counter that spell as it's being cast. Which is way worse than meddling mage. It's not even anywhere in the same league. Yeah. Like meddling mage costs a mana less and it just permanently locks Elsa's spell instead of sacrificing it to counter. Right. Right. So like you just don't really know what you're getting out of it. <laughs> like So they either make it a, a lot worse or a lot better and you have no like input into the whole thing. Yes, basically. Like I like the, the current approach much better. Like at least I, I don't know what the current approach is, but Currently, the world champion gets their card, and it seems like what they're doing is they just design a set, and then they're taking a look at the cards and go like, okay, we could use this card. Mm. Like, at least that's my impression what they're doing, and that makes a lot more sense. Because, of, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be the best card in the set, but, like, it should be a good card. Right. And, right. Yeah. I mean, this this 2-1 fairy that Utah got, I mean, that's that's going to see tournament. It's seeing tournament play, so that's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or it did before the the Orcish Bowmasters uh, came well, into existence. But don't, but don't, I mean, I don't think it's ever good enough for modern. But right. and Orcish Bowmasters don't exist in standard because it's not as rigged. So yeah, I, I think like I don't think the the fairy is going to be good enough for any older format. Like once it rotates out of standard, I'm afraid the days are numbered. But <laughs> I, now now I, I had I had no idea that was the wizard's process for getting ideas like before the invitation uh, before the actual event. Like now I'm wondering like why they even did that. Was it so it sounded like it was really just to get like free ideas from the players. Like because they ended up they just ended up doing something entirely different. So I don't understand like why <laughs> they would even keep it so open ended like that. So I and you guys are not designers either. So no but I think like the invitation was just a fun event, right? That was just Mark Rosewater's ch uh, child tournament, I guess. Like the formats were always something super weird. Like we never played normal formats. It was always something crazy. And I think that was just part of it. Like they just wanted to see 16 crazy cards from from the from the people playing in it. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't have too much to do with <laughs> the final card no. other than having your likeness on it because your your submission is like. I don't know how to describe it. It's like two order of magnitudes better than the final thing. So. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, given that it counts, it costs three total mana to count it. It probably wouldn't even be super broken. Like, I'm not even sure it would see legacy play or something. And it's probably not nearly good enough for vintage these days. But mm -hmm. it was definitely just way too powerful. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. at that point, they already realized that counter spell is probably just too good of a card. Next question for you. In terms of magic players all time, you mentioned John, of course, but who are the other four in your uh, all time top five? I mean, I really don't like these kind of listings, honestly. It's just <laughs> I'm because sorry. I, I could give you an answer for like every single year, but like overall, it's just, I mean, you probably just have to go by tournament results, but then also tournament results are just so random. Like a good mm -hmm. friend of mine, David Brooker, he finished. Ninth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh. Those were his four best proto finishes. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. if literally his tiebreakers were a little bit better, and he won one of these and finished top eight the other three times, he might have been voted into the Hall of Fame by now. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. it's just, and I mean, obviously, my turn... micro moments, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like my turn. Like I won my first twelve matches inside top eight, which is that that's like somewhere under one percent, I'm sure. So mm -hmm. I yeah like. It's pretty easy to say, or it's not easy, but like, like for example, Nathan is very likely just the best magic player right now. But like, 
top five overall. I mean, you can just look at results and go from that, I think, but like, it's just not the best metric and anything mm -hmm. else just doesn't make any sense because it changed so much over the time. That's a fair answer. I mean, there's some um, combination of like Yui, Reed, PV, Lewis Scott Vargas, John Finkel, like Gabriel Nassif, all these people are in there, but like saying this guy is better than this guy, I, I just, I yeah. don't think. We should celebrate them all, right? We should, yeah, have, exactly. we should yeah, celebrate great players. Uh, they're on the Hall of Fame or they're recognized for their body of work. Uh, that's all there is to it, right? There's a need to have a tier list or anything. That's very uh, Yeah, uh, I'm simplistic. always saying, like, someone was saying, like, are you worried that Nathan might, like, break your run or whatever? No, I mean, it's, it's just good to see that someone is doing yeah, well. I'd like, be happy if someone does that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you just win the next five protos, I'm going to be happy. I mean, that, I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a bit about so you you actually uh you you're still a magic player, but you're you're in sports betting, like uh, and I and you're not the first person I've talked to who's uh like uh done magic but also sports betting as well. Like is there some sort of like skill set that makes it easy to do or convertible to do sports betting, like just just games or like yeah, what is I it mean, exactly? Well, so when I got hired, I got hired as a trader. So I was just doing risk management on uh, on soccer games, basically. And that overlaps a lot with, I mean, not a lot, but it overlaps to a good amount. I mean, this whole risk management part, it's just, you need to be aware of probabilities. Like you get a, a bet from a, a customer, you see the customer stats, and then you have to figure out how much you want to change odds. It's a lot about, it's kind of similar, like, reacting to magic game states. I mean, it's it's kind of difficult to explain, but there is a lot of overlap. So basically what happened was that uh, another magic player, Zvi Mauschewitz, he was betting with this company because he's a super smart guy and he built a, a baseball model that was just better than what this bookmaker had. And he was beating them. So they just bought it from him. They told him, mm -hmm. look, we want to hire you. We would like to have your model. Just work for us. He did that. It worked super well. And then they hired Zvi and Ted Knudsen and Seth Byrne. Those were like two partners of Zvi at that point. And then they were like, okay, so we want to hire more people with a similar skill set. They were like, well, we know a bunch of magic players that uh, we, we can probably <laughs> hire. So they made the job offer to Marco Dirk and me, we took that. And then over the time, the company hired a bunch of other people, uh, William Jensen, Eugene Harvey, Antonino De Rosa, like they, they have been a lot of Ben Rubin, I don't know, at some point we had five or six Hall of Famers, I think, working in the company. And a lot of these people are still there, actually. Yeah. Have, have any of you, like, written a book about this? Because, or maybe it's like, it's the, the information is too secretive. You don't actually want to share it. Like you lose the uh, alpha or the edge, right? Because it sounds mm. like there's like some some systems or some some methodologies that, like, that one could use here. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, this is all, like, Zvi doesn't work for the company anymore, and this, this I'm sure this model that he built back then is outdated by now. I, mm -hmm. I doubt he would want to want to write about that, but like in Publicize general, there's it, not right? that much yeah. secretive about it. I mean, it's just it's just like a job, like someone working at like a, like. But John John is a hedge fund manager. I mean, right. he doesn't mind talking about it either, but he wouldn't want to explain you why he does exactly what he does at work. I don't think because that would mm -hmm. probably be a little bit too much, but 
I don't think there's much secret about it. And for example, what we what we all got hired for was actually trading these games, and that doesn't exist in that form anyway anymore because computers are just taking over. So mm -hmm. what I'm doing now is more of a product management job, where I'm like, uh, so we have these models, and then we have uh, automatization that when, for example, you make a bet, then automatization looks at our model, it looks at your stats, and then it moves the odds accordingly. And my job is mainly to build these models, to help build these models, and to implement them and see that everything works. But like this actual trading of games, at least for, for Pinnacle, the company I work for, it's, it's less and less. Like we used to have 15 soccer traders, I think, and now it's like three or four maybe. Mm. And they're just honestly less and less important. It's still pretty important for the super big games where you actually want to build like active positions and you just want to make decisions. But like 99% of the games are just being traded by automatization these days. Mm. Because I mean, computers are just better at this stuff than humans. That's uh, the, the sad truth. <laughs> Well, I, I did not know you were a product manager, so that makes uh, I'm also a product manager in a totally different field. But that's that's very cool to uh, to know about. Yeah, that's um, I, I, I had no idea. That's that's what you're working on. That That's great. Um, all right. Last question for you, Kai. Um, again, kind of a legacy related question. For some reason, <laughs> I keep going back to this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. At the end of the day, what how do you want to be known by? Like, what do you want to be known as or what do you want? How do you want other people to remember you when all is said and done? I mean, that's, I mean, just as a good magic player, I mean, maybe as a more successful magic player, I certainly wouldn't mind that. But I mean, that's, I mean, I, I don't really think about that, honestly. Like, I'm just playing these tournaments because it's a lot of fun for me. Obviously, it's, it feels super good to do well. Like, making the debate in Barcelona, I was extremely happy about. But I don't really spend much time thinking about that, honestly. All right, just just having fun. Uh, I, I guess having fun with magic—that's something that you. It seems like that's what you 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 enjoy. You it's enjoy. It's a great it. game. It's quite possibly the best game ever made. So, and it's quite great to be part of it. All right. Uh, well, Kai, it was a it was a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, thank you for taking the time and I, I wish you all the best in the, in your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you for listening to humans of magic. You've made it to the end. Thanks so much. You're awesome. If you'd like to support the show, there are two ways to do so. The first way is the most powerful. Tell a friend, tell them to check out humans of magic. I'd love it. If you could spread the word. The second way is to join the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Patreon is the best way to directly support the show from a financial perspective. For as little as $2 a month, you can support me and join the Discord. It gives me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. If you want to go the $5 support route, you'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you, as always, making it all the way to the end, and we'll see you next time.